This is the New Testament reading. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I, don't, I didn't notice anyone walking out after Michael read that verse or that passage, so hopefully you're at least willing to, to hear it out a little bit. Uh, I mentioned last week that um, a little fear and trepidation going into this passage because there's so many of us that have vested interest in this passage being interpreted in a certain way. And as husbands and wives, we probably have vested interest in me addressing the other partner all the things that we've wanted to say to them that they haven't heard or that we've been afraid to say. And uh, I run the risk of maybe underwhelming you with, with that. But this is a passage that is vital for us to understand. It's vital for our church. It's vital for our marriages. So let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. Father, I pray that as we encounter this uh, difficult, ancient, sometimes confusing text, that you would give us light, that Holy Spirit, you would anoint this time with your clarity, that you would anoint our hearts and our minds with an openness to be conformed to you, to see what you want us to see. Father, whether we're married or not this morning, I pray that this passage would be used to draw us closer to you and thus closer to our brothers and sisters next to us. If we are married, Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear what you want us to hear, that we would be changed, that we would grow to be a husband or a wife that serves the other, that gives up their rights, that lays down their life for the good of the other. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a man who was uh, listening to a book on his commute uh, home every day, and uh, this book was called Man of the House. And so when he finished the book, he burst into his house, and he says to his wife, from now on, I want you to know that I'm the man of this house, 
and you are to submit to me. Tonight, you are to prepare me a gourmet meal with a sumptuous dessert, and then I'm going to watch some TV while you clean the kitchen and get the kids to bed. And when you're finished, you can turn down the covers, and then guess who's going to rub my shoulders? His wife responded, well, I don't know, maybe the funeral director? It would have been far easier to skip this passage because doesn't that story sort of conjure up the images that we have of submission in marriage, submission in the home? We have kind of a, a leave-it-to-beaver idea or maybe a, a madman, though certainly Ward Cleaver is a much better husband than Don Draper. I thought about kind of passing over this passage, but the more I thought about it, the more I realized that this is this passage actually illustrates a crucial aspect of who we're trying to be as a church, that we want to be not a church where men and women have very rigidly defined roles, but one where people link arms across divisive passages like this and say, nonetheless, that we disagree on how this passage should be interpreted, I love you. And I want to link arms with you across this divisive passage, across our disagreement on behalf of those next to us, on behalf of our city, on behalf of Jesus. In other words, that we want InTown not to be an echo chamber where people with similar or very much the same views on everything come together and talk about everything that they already agree on. But we want to be a church where there's some level of cognitive dissonance for everyone, no matter where we're coming from, no matter if we've been Christians for many, many years, or whether we're just investigating, that there would be a level of cognitive dissonance, dissonance where we hold our opinions, our presuppositions open for scrutiny. Now, they tell you in seminary to choose illustrations that connect with the everyday life of your congregation. But all I kept coming up with this week was golf. And I know that very few of you play golf. I could probably count them on, on one hand. But you know what golf is, right? It's the game with the little white ball and the clubs, and they walk you know, up and down the, the course, and they try to get it in the hole. Now, I grew up playing golf, and my dad's a phenomenal golfer. And I can tell you that a proper golf swing is very counterintuitive. It doesn't feel like swinging anything else. If you hand even a, a six-year-old a baseball bat, they're going to grab it and probably swing it more or less like they will for the rest of their life, more or less like a professional does, though not quite as well. Swinging the golf, uh, golf club is very different. And you can learn to play golf with a terrible swing. Maybe you slice the ball every time, which means the ball is rotating, and so it spins right. And so what you do is you line up far left, and you slice the ball, and it happens to end up back in the fairway. We call these people duffers, and they've learned to compensate for not learning to swing. They can play golf, but they can't play very well. Their game is very limited. They can't hit a draw. If they come up on a dog leg left, they're in great trouble. Now, if you take lessons, and this is how you play, the coach will totally renovate everything that you're doing. And he or she will say, well, you're holding the club wrong. You need to wrap your hands differently. Get the palms off of the club. This isn't baseball. Keep your left arm and wrist more or less straight. 
Keep your head square over the ball and don't move it. Swing around your head. And once he or she tells you all that, you go in front of the ball and you swing and you miss. You swing again and you miss. You swing and you top the ball and it goes right in front of you. You swing and it goes this way. And you swing and it goes straight up. And you think, no way is this person right. There's no way this is how you hit a golf ball. And most people get to that point and they just decide, well, I used to be able to hit it on the fairway. Now I can't hit it 10 yards. So I'm going back and I'm going to swing this club and I'm going to play golf like I've done all of my life. There's lots of cognitive dissonance. It's counterintuitive how to actually play golf well. And most people don't progress beyond that point. Now, we have a number of objections to this text this morning. Maybe you've personally experienced living inside a a very closed system that's been derived from this passage or one like it. Maybe a parent or a spouse has used this passage or one like it in the Bible to police people, to keep people in line, usually women, sometimes children. And I have great empathy for you because it's absolutely true that people have used this passage as spiritual justification for maintaining their hold on power. And so there's going to be cognitive dissonance that this passage may be used to draw you, to draw this church towards Jesus. That this passage could possibly fit within an open, life-giving, healthy system. Or maybe you come from a, a more traditional background, and you're, you're very happy with the interpretation that you've been taught is the correct one for this passage. You're comfortable within more rigid, more closed systems with the expectations being very clear for what you are to do and what the other person is to do. And maybe your fear is that what we're doing, if we modify that at all, is that we're accommodating to our modern culture, and we're reading that culture culture back into the Bible. But could it be that your interpretation is also culturally conditioned, that the way that you read this text also comes from the lens lens of a dominant culture. It's just a different one. It's not the modern one, but it's the mid-20th century one, for example. And so maybe you have cognitive dissonance as I sort of push on your boundaries a little bit. I get it. This is a, a tough passage. It's a scary passage, but it's one that we all need to hear. Now, we've made a very clear interpretive decision in starting the passage where we did. In verse 21 rather than verse 22, a lot of the older translations start this passage or have a break between verse 21 and verse 22. And so the submission, the general submission of all believers is separated from the submission of the wife. And so we're making an interpretive decision that sets up this passage very differently Now, why is this? There's two reasons. One is that submission to other people's needs, submission to the good of those next to us, whether we're married or not, is central to following Jesus. It's central to following the one who doesn't pick up a crown to rule but picks up a towel to serve. Richard Bauckham is a a British intellectual, a New Testament scholar, and he says the identity of God, who God is, is revealed as much in self-abasement and service as it is in exaltation 
and rule. The God who is high can also be low, because God is God not in seeking his own advantage, but in self-giving. His self-giving and abasement and service ensures that his sovereignty over all things is also a form of self-giving. Only the servant can also be the Lord. So one is that it's very central that we understand that the call to submission, to be subject to one another, is a call that every Christian has upon them to everyone else. Now secondly, the reason is grammatic. There's no verb in verse 22. All the translations say something like, wives submit to your husbands or wives be subject to your husbands. But submit or subject is not in verse 22. The verb actually comes from verse 21. So to understand the context, you start with verse 21. Now, first observation. The Christian life is not meant to be lived in a solitary state. Whether you're married or not, whether you're in a dating relationship or not, your Christian maturity is dependent upon you being a relational person who is invested into the lives of other people and their lives invested in you. Maturity, growth, conform, being conformed more to the image of Christ comes about not by making the most of ourselves by ourselves, but it me means making the most of personal relationships. You see, we can camp out in tidy theological systems. They can be very rigid and they can have very clear boundaries, but relationships don't. Relationships are messy. Community is messy. The church is a disorderly place. And if you're choosing to be a part of in-town, you're entering a community that is by its very vision, by its values, a diverse community, not based upon affinity where everyone is friends, not based upon a very small rendering of possible interpretations of Scripture, but it's a community that is founded upon Jesus and his mission. And if you're joining in town, you're joining a community that expects you to be malleable, expects you to be willing to change. You can come in from anywhere, but you can't stay there. We have to be willingly, willing to sit in that cognitive dissonance, not to run from it. And this comes from joining hands with others who see the world very differently from you. And if you're not willing to do that, then we short-circuit our own spiritual growth. We short-circuit what God wants for you. And you short-circuit the mission that Jesus has for you and for his church. We don't want to make the most of personal relationships by trying to become stronger than the other, by overpowering them, by imposing our will upon them, but by allowing their needs their burdens, their differences to wash over us and change us in the process. And this is very un-American because we live in a very hyper-competitive culture. Our educational systems, our athletics, our compensation in life and in work, our popularity, much of this is built upon this competitive, aggressively competitive system. And there's many places in our culture where that sort of competitiveness pays off. You get rewarded for being aggressively competitive, but there's one place where it's actually the worst, and that's in our family. If husbands 
are vying for dominance, if husbands are asserting their will upon their wives, using verses like this for justification, if wives are taught to hide their gifts, to hide their insights, their strengths, because of an overly wooden interpretation of this passage, it prolongs each other's immaturity. It undermines intimacy, and it hinders the overall mission of the family and the mission of the church. Okay, you, might, you may say, well, I'm with you so far, but doesn't it say that the husband is the head of the wife? Yes, but what does that mean? In our context, we automatically think oftentimes in corporate terms that head of state, the head of the company, the head honcho, and then we import that on what head in this passage must mean. What we do is we take this observation that the husband is the head of the wife and turn it into a command for the husband to be the head of the wife. Do you understand the distinction? It's an observation of what is, not a command for what should be. It's not a command to lead. It's not a command to exert headship. The word for head is kephal, which means noggin. It means your physical head on top of your body. That's what it means. There's other words that Paul could have used if he meant to say the husband is the leader of the wife or the husband is the head of the household. There's two very specific words that would correspond with those two concepts. Instead, he says head, the husband is the noggin of the wife. You see, headship doesn't, doesn't correspond with submission. Headship corresponds with body. The husband is the head and the wife is the body. The husband is to be a loving sacrifice for his wife, and the wife is to submit for the husband and for the good of the marriage. You see, this passage is so often used to draw lines in the sand, to vie for one's rights. It's a wedge that creates disunity rather than unity. It's exactly the opposite of what this passage is trying to say and seeking to do away with. The head-body concept is that though these two entities seem to be separated, they actually are so organically united that the extent of their unity is a mystery. It's so complete, the husband and wife's life together, that Paul resorts to metaphor. He says it's a mystery. The only thing I can think of to compare it to is the way that the body works, the way that the head and the body are linked together so organically that they can't live apart. He's getting at this idea in the Old Testament that Jesus picks up on is that a husband leaves his family to cleave to his wife and they become one flesh. Again, a metaphor. He's not mechanically suggesting or describing very defined roles. He's saying you are united. You're a head and a body. Now maybe you say, okay, well that's, that's a bit different, but you've got to understand my husband's a jerk. And what will he do with all this power? Well, that's true. Most of us are jerks, us husbands. But what we do is we compound this by focusing upon your responsibilities and not, not our own. Look at the passage again. Notice how long the section is given to husbands and how brief the section is that is addressed to wives. And I can't tell you how many weddings that I've attended where 
the pastor speaks to the wife almost exclusively using this passage and then briefly acknowledges that the husband may have some responsibilities as well. It's exactly the opposite of this passage. Notice how detailed, how exacting and demanding the commands are to the husband. The only power that it gives to the husband is the power to make you beautiful, the power to hold you up the power to surrender our needs, our comfort, in order to give you comfort and beauty and life. The only power is a loving self-sacrifice. Now, this is absolutely subversive in the context that Paul is addressing because in the ancient world, the husband was unquestionably the head of the home in terms of power and authority. A marriage wasn't often a marriage of equals. And the household codes of the ancient world gave very strict hierarchies, and it always addressed the subordinate members the most, if it ever addressed the superordinate members. It always gave exacting, demanding commands to to the woman and to the child and to the servant. And then if anything, it would give just a few little hints to the husband, to the head of the household, As if to say, you continue doing what you're doing. Let me order the household in order to serve your interests. And so it put the wife, the children, and the servants underneath the paterfamilias, underneath this head honcho. And it told them what to do and ordered their life and left him alone to do his bidding. He was the person in power. Now what does Paul do? He writes to this church living in that context and says, not only... Do the husbands have to genuinely, sacrificially love and serve their wives as Christ loves the church? But he also, they also must abide by the general command to submit to one another in verse 21, including the wife, including the children, including every other Christian. It's incredibly subversive. It's incredibly different than what was going on in that day. So what we should see in this is that those of us who have relative power, whether it's in the church or in the home or it's in the workplace, those of us who have relative power, whether it's because we earn the money, we have a louder voice, we're more intimidating, we have a bigger body and so we can impose our will, those of us who have relative power, we should be the ones who are most pinched by this passage. We should be the ones that are saying, I don't know if I can go there. Husbands, if you're not submitting to your wife more often than she submits to you, then you're probably doing it wrong. You probably haven't wrestled with the full implications of this passage. The call towards the husband to place his needs below that of his wife relativizes the conventional authority structures that were at play in that world. These people lived in a society where status and authority were everything. They were rigidly marked out and strictly observed. And here comes Paul, and he completely eviscerates that whole system. And so what we look back to and think, well, maybe that's a bit regressive. In Paul's day, it was incredibly subversive. Now, what does that mean for us today? Obviously, we've only kind of bounced around a little bit in this passage because we only have so much time. 
But let's try to make a couple of applications or a couple more. We have to be careful here because the passage actually says that this relationship is a mystery. So we should avoid being overly specific in terms of constructing very rigid roles and behaviors. What this passage is talking about is not who should mow the lawn. It's not who should balance the checkbook. It's not who should work. It's not who should be the primary person who gives care to the children. That's not what is in the bullseye of this passage. But a couple of things, at least it means this. Husbands, if if you're a husband or you want to be a husband, this passage should scare you to death because you're in its crosshairs. If you're exerting your influence to accomplish your goals at the expense of your wife's, you've misunderstood the passage. If you're the head of your wife, like Jesus is the head of the church, then your first instinct should be to submit to her needs. Your first interest, your primary responsibility is laying down your life on behalf of hers. You're called to give up your comfort and to serve her, to submit to her interests. How do you know if you're doing this? Well, your home will feel very different. You'll have a marriage in a home. If the husband is obeying this passage, it won't feel rigid and hierarchical, but it will, it will feel tender. It will feel open. It will feel safe. Your wife will feel safe. People will notice. Your children will notice. Now, wives, I've been hard on us husbands because we need it and because this passage is hard on us. But just as husbands should look at this passage and see their own responsibilities rather than yours, so you should too. And I don't want you to leave thinking about how you can then correct this creature that you live with, this beast that you live with, this ogre. Submission doesn't mean simply giving your husband the final say on big decisions. It may occasionally mean that, but if a husband is sacrificially loving and uplifting his wife and the wife is coming alongside in biblical submission, there could be very few times that I can imagine where a big decision that you would be completely at odds at. Keep talking. It has to mean more than just a tie-breaking authority that the husband gets to finally make the final decision. It's so much more than that. Because what does the passage say? It says submit in everything. It's not just an occasional submission. It's far more difficult. It's a state of submission. It's a relational posture, not a corporate arrangement. And it's not about power. It means coming under the husband to lift him up and promote him and respect him and to make him come alive. That's what true submission is. It means willingly coming under, not made to come under, not pounded into submission, but saying as an act of my own will, as a service to Jesus, I willingly come alongside and even underneath this person that I live with for the good of our marriage, for the beauty of the world, for the good of our church, and even for my own happiness. You see, it's, it's loving service, not subserviency. It's very different, and it feels different. Now, at some point 
in all of our marriages, usually like on the third day. We look across to this person that we've married and say, what is this creature? Who have I married? They have no idea how I think. They have no idea what I need and what I want. And so what do we end up doing? We end up vying for control. We end up wrestling for rights. We end up saying, well, if this person doesn't know my needs, then they certainly can't fulfill my needs. And so I have to seek out my needs. I have to make sure that my needs are fulfilled and that my wants are addressed. And what does this do? It breeds discord, and it breeds frustration, and it breeds chaos, and it breeds isolation, and it actually takes you farther away from the very thing that you think you're seeking. But a home where the husband and wife consistently give up advantage, seeking to serve one another rather than to be served, the the home where both parties are racing each other to give up their rights, Both partners come alive. Both partners experience their needs being met without asking for them, without demanding them. Both partners come alive. They get what they need. The home is a warm place. It's an inviting place. It's a soft place. It's a safe place for the wife, for the children, and for anyone who would come in. It feels safe. It feels alive. It feels vibrant. And isn't that what Jesus does with his church? He lovingly sacrifices. He willingly submits to make us beautiful, to make us whole, to make us come alive so that we will be a safe place, a soft place, a place that welcomes outsiders, a place where people feel safe, that they can come into and be loved. Why did Jesus give up his authority to come to earth and rescue humanity? Why was it that he gave up his rights? Was it indecisiveness? Was it inferiority? No, it was a mark of his greatness. His submission, his self-serving sacrifice was a mark of his greatness and his kingship. And he said, for the joy set before me, I go to the cross. Do you see? It is in giving up his rights. It is in full submission that he finds joy, that he finds fullness. And God has called all of us to follow him in this, to be the first to give up our rights, to say, not my comfort, but yours. You see, Jesus submits. He fights not for the crown, but for the towel. And he says, I want to come and I wash your feet. And that's what submission and self-sacrifice in marriage looks for. It's not fighting for the crown. It's not fighting for rights, but it's fighting for the towel. It's saying who will serve the other. And what does he do as he does this? He leads not by oppressing, not by dominating, but by laying down his life. And in so doing, he sets his bride free. He liberates his bride by service. And friends, we're set free. And we can set others free if we're willing to loosen our grip. If we're willing to hold the club differently. If we're not content to hit a slice that somehow lands in the fairway. But if we're willing to say, Jesus, help me learn how to grip the club. Jesus, help me learn how to grip life. Because I've been fighting with my wife. I've been fighting with my coworkers. 
And what I really think it is, if I'm honest, is that I've been fighting to have my needs met and fighting for my own rights, and it's not working. So would you help me learn to hold the club differently? It means surrender. It means letting go. It means giving up. It means letting Jesus have the last word, and it means submitting to your grace. And it's great practice for marriage. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you would enable us to submit to one another. That takes on so many different pictures and shapes. And Lord, I pray that you would enable us because we don't want to. We don't want to submit ourselves to other people. We don't want to come under them. We want to seek our own advantage and our own gain. And Lord, would you help change us? Change us as parents that we are there to serve and love and uplift our children and make them feel safe and challenged. As husbands and wives, let us come alongside each other, come under one another to lift them up. Even if it feels so wrong, I pray that you would help us to trust you. And Lord, as a church, let us have those same interests internally as we see other needs, other burdens, that we would put ourselves underneath them. And that as a church, as a whole, that we would see ourselves as a body that is meant to give hope and to carry the burdens of those outside these doors. Lord, I pray that you would help us to wrestle with this as we confess our faith and as we come to the table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.